Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and thank you once again for joining my brother and I for what is to be a stupendous podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, and I am the author of a series of books, Bigfoot, Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, all of which are available at Amazon in paperback, ebook, and in the Kindle Lending Library. And if you missed our last podcast, I announced that finally, Volume 1 is also available now, 1 through 6, in Audible, and Amazon and iTunes, I should say in Audible format at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. So do have at it, folks. Show a little support for the show and have a little fun at the same time. Well, we're all hunkered down here still with this corona nonsense. And I know that my brother has a little treat for you up his <laughs> sleeve in our segment, Cryptids in the News and Other Oddities. And Kev, come on in here, brother. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Very good. I know, uh, you know, generally I don't know what you, well, I truly don't know what you're going to talk about, but I do know the topic. I gave you and, a hint this week. A hint, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this definitely falls under the other, other oddities <laughs> <laughs> and is definitely apropos for the season. Exactly. So let me flip this over to you, bro, and uh, bring us into your realm. Will do, will do. Yeah, so this week we're going to go slightly off the path of cryptids, and we're going to talk about a legendary creature. Indeed. And, um, you know, candidly, I had a couple of super creepy dark cryptid and other oddity stories that were well along in development. And I was trying to pick between one of them uh, for this week. And, you know, they were just a little too dark for me personally this week with all of the bad news around COVID-19. So I thought, you know, let's do something that's a little more fun. It's a legendary creature. And then, uh, or prior to also determining I was going to do this, I realized that this podcast episode will actually drop on the website uh, on Easter Sunday. So we are going to talk about a legendary creature called Osterhaas. Ah, Osterhaas. Osterhaas. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is Osterhaas? Osterhaas is the <laughs> Easter hare. Or what we might call the Easter Bunny. Ah, das Easter Bunny. Das Easter Ost. Bunny. Was das los? <laughs> <laughs> so first uh, off, we're gonna we're gonna step back, Bill. We're gonna talk about Easter. 
and I know you're going to help me out on this a lot uh, if I go off the path. But, you know, basically, this Sunday, when you're listening to this podcast, if you're a regular listener, it's going to be Easter Sunday. And, of course, it's the day uh, on which the resurrection of Jesus is said to have taken place, and it's when we celebrate that. Um, now, you know, what's interesting about Easter, if you're ever trying to plan your Easter celebration, you know, you quickly notice that the day on which we celebrate Easter changes from year to year, right? Right. right. And um, and sometimes it changes wildly, you know, I mean, from the beginning of March to the end of April, for example, year to year. And the reason for the variation is that Easter always falls on the first Sunday after the full moon following the spring equinox. Um, so this year, of course, it'll be on April 12th. And then next year, in 2021, it'll be on April 4th. So you'll see it'll move eight days in one year. Um, okay. That's interesting. Uh, say that again, Kev. It always follows the full moon, the first full moon after the after spring, the spring equinox. equinox. But, I, you know, I read this a couple of times, and I have to go back and look because I thought we had some that were in early March, but I bet it was around, you know, March 22nd or something like that. Uh-huh. You know. That's, in, that's interesting. I never, you know, who would think about that? But No, exactly. Like, yeah. why, why does it move that much, you know? Yeah, very interesting. Um, so, and that, that gets you back. And then, you know, in modern day, you know, say the last 200 years or so, Easter is similar to some other major holidays like Christmas and even Halloween, where, you know, these... These um, holidays may have, like Halloween, may have a Christian element and a pagan element, but they kind of blend together, right? You know, especially in modern day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's talk about Easter as being associated with spring, which, of course, you know, we all think of it that way, you know, as well as, uh, you know, the rising of Christ. It's also like we think of it as the green grass, the Easter lilies, tulips, daffodils, and all alike, the signs of spring. Right. And, um, you know, most major holidays, especially, uh, uh, you know, some of the obvious Christian holidays are celebrated and have some connection to the changing of the seasons, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you Definitely. think of, right, Christmas, um, the, the New Testament, you know, as I read it here, but I know you, you're you a better expert than I am, Bill. You know, it doesn't really give us the exact date of when Jesus was born. Um, and a lot of scholars, you know, that I read about say that, you know, the main reason why it's celebrated on December 25th was it was the date of the winter solstice on the original Roman calendar. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because uh, I've had you, you know me I have a big mouth, Kev, <laughs> and and I've had some people give me some lip service through the years about you know their understanding is the twenty fifth of December is not exactly the right day, so why are you you know they're trying to poke at it, right? Uh, to which I say, frankly, I don't care if I celebrate it in August, July, October. It's a celebration of remembrance. Right. And Easter is the same way, right? And as I, I'm sure you're getting into here, there are some a variety of celebrations across the world at this point in time. 
Oh, no doubt about it. And But I mean, it is convenient that we all celebrate it on the same day. Right. right. So that we can be off of work, ideally, and, you know, not interrupting one another and have a nice quiet time. And if you work in the service industry, you know, with luck, maybe you'll be off on that day as well. Right. But, you know, or you could have twelve hundred covid patients in your hospital. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> not not so good. Not sorry. <laughs> You know, go ahead, bro. Yeah, I can't. I can't resist. No, it's okay. And then you know, of course, the spring season and Easter. um, It's just generally outside of religion. Spring is often met with excitement. You know, as it brings an end to the bleak, you know, drab winter, and you start to see the birth of uh, life all around you. Whether it's the trees budding or. Um, you know, the birds nesting, whatever it is, and the flowers growing, of course. So, you know, it's definitely appropriate that Easter be celebrated in the spring. So we look at, the for a couple of minutes, we'll look at the name of the celebration of Easter. And this is, I'm going to talk about it like it's black and white, but it's clearly not. So, you know, there's There's uh, uh, literature and scholars that say this is all bogus, and there's there's some that say this is the absolute truth. So I'm going to pick it as being true just to talk about it a little bit. So that the naming of Easter comes back to the name of a pre-Christian goddess in England called Oster, E-O-S-T-R-E, who was celebrated at the beginning of spring. And... um, but the only reference, it's interesting, of this goddess comes from writings of uh, a British monk uh, whose name was Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, who lived in the late 7th and early 8th century. And um, uh, there's a religious studies scholar named Bruce Forbes who wrote about him and said that Bede wrote that the month in which English Christians were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus had been called Ostermonth or Ostermonth in Old English, referring to the goddess named Oster. And even though Christians had begun affirming the Christian meaning of the celebration, they continued to use the same name that was um, originally associated with the goddess to designate the season. Huh. So it's pretty interesting, right? Had Had you heard that before? I hadn't, but, you know, it doesn't surprise me because uh, through the ages, how long ago did you say this was, Beda, the monk named Beda? This is uh, 7th and early 8th century. Okay, so, you know, coming up on the Middle Ages. Exactly. There was a lot of melding going on. Don't forget that this was a time uh, uh, when travel uh, wasn't that easy, the uh, evangelistic efforts of uh, Christianity were making headways into uh, Europe. Uh, we all know the story of St. Patrick. Uh, d- different things were going on. So it doesn't surprise me that there was uh, somewhat of a melding going on there uh, culturally between one thing being introduced while another was still being celebrated. Right. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, it's very interesting. 
That's cool stuff. So, so now we'll go from Easter on to Osterhaus. Yeah, the <laughs> <Yeah>. Osterhaus. <laughs> so, so we let the cat out of the bag already. But, you know, remember the folks that brought us in our Christmas podcast bill, Santa Claus? Yeah, Santa Claus. <laughs> and they also brought us Strudel and Wiener Schnitzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the... <laughs> <laughs> The Asterhassen, what is his name again? <laughs> <laughs> so the Asterhass, or Easter Hare, um, yeah. they trace back to a, a book that was published in 1682 by a guy named George Frank van Frankenau. How's that? <laughs> Sounds like Frankenstein. <laughs> it might be. Might Maybe be. it's his brother-in-law, brother. <laughs> it's his brother-in-law. <laughs> and he, he wrote a book about Easter eggs. And in the book, he referred to the tradition of the Osterhass, or Easter hare, that delivered eggs for children and sometimes brought toys, too, to the children. And, of course, only good children. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, it really is- sounds a lot like Santa Claus or Christ Kind, you know, that we talked about in the Christmas podcast, also out of the German, with a lot of German heritage, I should say. Yeah, and all of these... Uh- are kind of neat in that they were encouraging children to be good, to receive good things. You Absolutely. know what I mean? So look, it's a little odd in this day and age for the culturally for the people because you know they're so caught up in the electronics and everything else that they have. But nevertheless, it's still good a good practice to teach children that good things come to those who do good. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it's it's kind of neat, and uh, I'm chomping at the bit here. Now, this isn't going to be like the Monty Python Holy Grail Bunny, is it? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bunny. <laughs> it's just a little white rabbit. <laughs> I've seen it bite a man's head clear off. <laughs> So, no, the uh, the tradition doesn't go back to the Monty Python bunny, but I was thinking about it while I was researching it. So, Yeah, no doubt. We're clearly, uh, you know, uh, raised in the same household, although one of us may have been raised by a Bigfoot. <laughs> but, you know, so talking about this early um, German tradition, and more specifically, they a lot of scholars believe it originated among German Lutherans, uh, as the Easter hare, um, and and this Easter hare would you know play a role of like a judge, evaluating who was good and who was disobedient or kind of naughty and nice, like Santa Claus, um, and they would bring these gifts and these eggs. But unfortunately, and I am s- severely disappointed. I searched high and low, I could not find any wicked creature counterpart. To the Osterhaus, like the Christmas Grampus. Okay. You remember the Grampus. Yeah, who could forget the freaking Grampus and those nasty masks those people wear over there when they celebrate? They dress up like the evil goblins with blood coming out of their mouth Uh. and go and visit the little children. I mean, shouldn't you have like the Monty Python bunny (laughs) Osterhaus equivalent? A little white rabbit with blood dripping out of its mouth and... 
maybe a head lying here or there. <laughs> yeah, lo- extra long fangs protruding <laughs> from the jowls. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so so oh. it, it's interesting, though, like when you go back and you look at this, you also see, and this is interesting, I got to look at this some more, that the hare or the rabbit was uh, a popular motif in medieval church art. And they'll even show in some uh, motifs three uh, three rabbits kind of in a circle, kind of chasing one another on these churches. And um, some scholars equate it to, uh, you know, a, re- a relation to the Holy Trinity, which I never heard of before. I never saw any of this until I started to research this. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there's always been uh, oddities uh, of that sort. And whenever people see the number three. Oh, yeah. Uh, like even in these ghost shows, somebody's always getting scratched and there's three scratches. Right. And they say it's a mockery of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay. The three bunny rabbits uh, <laughs> chasing each other in a circle. I mean, it's not consistent with church teaching but probably uh, could have occurred at different times by different people, you know? Yeah, but I mean, like on one of these cathedrals they show, you can look it up. Uh, uh, it's called the Dreifhassen Fenster, <laughs> which is the window of the three hairs. And it's uh, could you featured, spell that for me? <laughs> it's featured in a cathedral <laughs> called the Paderborn Cathedral in Paderborn, Germany. Okay. And, like you can look up a picture of it. I'll put one on our website. Uh, but it's pretty interesting. So we got we got the Oster House, the bunny. We have the holiday. So what about the eggs? You right? So so these you know eggs have been used right as a fertility symbol going all the way back in ages, right? Um, uh-huh. And um, they became uh, a symbol in Christianity associated with rebirth as early as the first century A.D. Um, and you know there's a, there's something called the Phoenix Egg. That was written about back then and associated with Easter um, uh, going all the way back in time. And then, you know, in in medieval Europe, it was uh, prohibited that you could you couldn't eat eggs during the fast of Lent. So, you know, kind of like not eating meat on Fridays. You couldn't eat eggs at all during Lent because it was believed to be, you know, uh, something very special and something holy in a sense. Okay, And then they say that a common practice in England during this time was that children would go door to door begging for eggs on the Saturday before Lent began. And then Mm. people handed out these eggs to children as a special treat so they could eat them prior to their fast. Well, that's interesting, you know. And and again, we're not talking uh, candies or chocolates or anything. We're talking about regular eggs. Right, yeah. some type of sustenance that people could relate to, you know. Yeah, and then it was something that they fasted on, uh, to fasted from during Lent to celebrate Lent to remember, you know, of course, uh, uh, Christ's suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then, so that's how we start to get eggs into things, and then you could see that if you were not eating them during Lent. Maybe you would start to decorate them or at least dye them so that when Lent was over, you would, you would in celebration, maybe eat the decorated eggs or at least celebrate the decorated eggs. I mean, you didn't have refrigeration back then, so I don't know if they actually ate them. <laughs> yeah, well, but, you know, it's, it's just kind of neat 
how uh, things come together and then where they go, you know. Exactly, exactly. And then it's interesting. So I was reading about how they colored the eggs, right? So they 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 boiled them a lot of times with different kinds of flowers, and the flowers would change change the color of the egg, which again, you didn't have the flowers unless it was springtime. So that kind of makes sense, right? So you decorate the eggs. And then certain Christians, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, to this day, they say, uh, typically dye their eggs red. So only red. So it's like the color of blood in recognition of uh, Christ sacrificing his blood. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, do you mean to tell me that they didn't buy an egg coloring kit at Walgreens? <laughs> I think they did buy an egg coloring kit, but it only had red red tablets. <laughs> uh, yeah, it only and and the little wire hoop that you dumped the vinegar in the cup that stank up the whole kitchen. <laughs> and it took forever for some of the colors to dissolve. Oh, man. Yeah, and you get it on your fingers. Your fingers would die to all different colors. Right. Some of the a... tablets still remember they dissolve in like 10 seconds, and others would take like 10 minutes, which was like, <laughs> really? Like, how could this be? You made all these tablets. <laughs> you know they're made for kids. You're not going to sit around for 10 minutes waiting for one to dissolve. Yeah, and it's a good way to get some kid crying. My yellow didn't melt. Exactly. exactly. So then, this is pretty interesting, I think. You know, there's there's a Ukrainian art of decorating eggs for Easter known as, and I may not present, pronounce this correctly, but pasanky. So it's P-Y-S-A-N-K-Y. So some of our listeners, you know, you can write in if you're of Ukrainian origin and, and uh, teach me how to pronounce it. But this actually dates back, and these are those very detailed eggs you've seen, you know, kind of like withdrawn decorations on them, usually on a background of a color, right? Yeah, now, who was that famous uh, uh, Fabergé? Fabergé, right. So Remember these Fabergé, are, these the are like Fabergé, eggs? but they're, they're eggs. Okay. So, um, and uh, the, the, that, that name, that method, is, um, means that it's decorated with a wax-resist method. method. So I think, you know, you'd basically inscribe on the design um, with beeswax over the coloring, and the beeswax would have some coloring in it. So oh. kind of getting back to your point, Bill, a little bit like that pause crayon, <laughs> but exactly. a little more sophisticated, you know. Right, right. You'd put the crayon on where you didn't want the... Uh the dye to the go. dye to have an effect yeah. on it. You'd write on it "Happy Easter" or "Mom" or you know "Love you" or something like that. Right. right. Or look out, there's a Bigfoot behind you. But I thought exactly. <laughs> you know, we might have one of a Bigfoot running, you know, squatching along. Yeah, with a child in its mouth. That's what our eggs look like, folks. <laughs> but I thought what was interesting was when you look at these eggs, you know, you clearly could say these are Easter eggs, but they actually date way before Christian times. So I thought that was kind of cool, too, because, you know, yeah. you'd look at one of those, especially if it was around Easter, and you'd say, oh, look, this is probably like an early fancy form of an Easter egg. Mm-hmm. So. But again, though, we have this intermingling of things that were and uh, new things came along. And uh, you had some people that were kind of blending or melding one with the other. 
Yeah, and certainly the egg itself, like, you know, it was linked before Christ to pagan traditions, you know, to show the symbol of a new life. And then, of course, you know, from a Christian perspective, Easter eggs are, you know, meant to represent Jesus's emergence from the tomb and resurrection, right? Or at least they're associated with it, you know. Right, right. The whole holiday is the whole based holiday on that, is around you know. it. I don't know if the egg itself does that, but you know. Yeah, no. Uh, the egg really has no uh, relation to the the Christian faith around, uh, you know. Uh, Good Friday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, you know. Uh, but it certainly has maintained uh, itself as being part of Easter for who knows how long. Right, right. And you know, when everybody came over from Europe, Kev, we got some Germanic in us, some Norwegian. Uh, all of these people brought these things with them, like the Christmas tree. and uh, Oh, no doubt. You know, yeah. You know, many other many other things, traditions. I mean, uh, us as modern, you know, Americans, immigrant Americans, um, our history here on this continent is very short. You know, so almost everything we do came over from Europe. You know, right? You know, I mean, I was just looking at a uh, a tour of the Holy Land. It was an hour long, fantastic narrative and whatnot. And you you consider that our country has a history of you know two hundred and fifty years or something you know maybe a little longer really on the record, uh, but in the grand scheme of things we're like a babe. Oh man, and you know Bill, you know I travel like crazy around the world. First time I went to some of the big museums in China in mainland China, unbelievable. You know the 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 works that they have there, and then you see how old they are. You're like, what the heck? I didn't know, yeah. know people, you know, humans could do something like that at that point in time. Yeah. You know, that it level really, of art. Yeah, it really is remarkable, and that's a gift. Crazy, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's talk about the Bible just for a minute, uh, specifically. You'll be surprised here, folks, but the Bible makes no mention of Osterhaus. <laughs> yeah. And Bill, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but no mention of a long-eared, puffy, fluffy-tailed creature who delivers <laughs> eggs to good children on Easter Sunday, right? Well, no, there is no mention, but you never know. The apostles could have been baking one over a stick fire. <laughs> hey, Peter, give me that leg. <laughs> I couldn't help but think about that when we were talking about our uh, German relatives, Bill, bringing over this. They're like, ah, Ostas, and then we could eat him later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> After the children play with him, we'll eat him. We'll eat him. <laughs> we'll have some beer and a pretzel and some rabbit leg. Heffenweizen and Ostahase. <laughs> All right, and we're going to end up on Easter candy. So you mentioned that, Bill. It's pretty pretty interesting. You're not going to believe this one. So what's one of one of the most famous egg-shaped candies associated with Easter? What is one of the yeah, most? One of them. Uh, you know, I'm not a big candy I guy. Know, but you always had a bunch of them in the bottom of your basket, and they kind of stick to everything. 
The, the, the uh, marshmallow eggs? No, no, those are good too. But the je- <laughs> jelly beans. So Oh, jelly beans. Jelly beans okay. are like really very much associated with Easter. Um, they became associated with Easter back in the 1920s and 1930s. But get this, that the jelly beans origins um, date all the way back to a biblical era concoction called the Turkish Delight. Which really? is basically a jelly bean. Unbelievable. Which you would never guess that, right? No, I mean, but they're lingering around long enough. You know, what's old is new again. You know, it's like a recipe. Exactly. Exactly. Crazy. And then, you know, that according to one of these stats, uh, National Confectioners Association, the candy guys, uh, over 16 billion jelly beans are made in the U.S. each year for Easter. That is really bizarre. Sixteen billion, and I won't be eating any of them. How about you, Bill? <laughs> Not anymore, man. I'm running out of teeth because of eating candy. <laughs> Holy mackerel! <laughs> you know, but our parents back then weren't uh, that diligent in teaching us. You know that the stuff was going to wipe us out. You know, no, sir. Yeah, that's uh, we were eating candy galore. And uh, while other parents were saying, make sure you brush your teeth. Yeah. You know, but. Yeah, uh, ours might have been giving us a big chunk of bubble gum when we went to bed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A piece of gum to lay down with the sugar on your teeth for eight hours. Yeah, folks. Bill and I have uh, dentist chairs in our respective dentist office with our names on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate to good old George George W. Washington, that is. <laughs> with with his wooden teeth. Exactly. That poor guy. Ay, 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 ay. Well, that was pretty crazy, Kev. I mean, I didn't know where you were going to go with this Easter egg, Easter house, and uh, whatever it is. Asta house. Asta house. We're going to put you in the cooler. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's neat, though. It's neat, though, historically, uh, to take a look back. Uh, because, you know, nobody talks about these things. You know, we've all been educated in uh, grammar school, junior high, high. Nobody touches on these subjects, and they really have bearing on our existence, right? I mean, this is something that's going on that you could spend a little time on, and the kids could be like, wow, you know, that was kind of cool. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, I I, uh, I had a lot of fun with it, and it did... Perhaps selfishly, but hopefully it'll make some other people smile, you know, in these crazy times that we're in right now. Um, You know, it brought me up a little bit in a positive way, thinking about this rather than, you know, all of the stuff in the news lately. So Yeah, no, it's excellent. And uh, folks, I was saying to my brother uh, before the show when I knew he was going to talk about the Easter Bunny, I said, maybe some folks will pull their kids over and listen to the podcast as we jabber about this, uh, the history of uh, the, the eggs. The Astahas. The Astahas. And then when you're walking with your kids through Target or, you know, the supermarket, of course, keeping social distance, they can look at it and say, it's not a bunny, it's a hare. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's not a bunny, it's a hare. <laughs> Uh, but now, little children, <laughs> it's time for Uncle Bill to shoo you out of the room because things are going to get a little <laughs> bit nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to begin with a 
very strange and detailed uh, story, once again uh, heralding back to an individual who is quite literally doing something that next to nobody does in this world when he comes across what it is he comes across. Now, my initial query into sourcing uh, people for these tales invited fishermen, hunters, uh, hikers, uh, all kinds of individuals to contact me. And I was looking for those who had either seen a Bigfoot, had believed to have found evidence of the beast's existence, uh, and the variety of those who had contacted me is virtually unending. Uh, you can't believe the amount of people that contact me telling me stories. Some of them are very brief. Uh, some of them wouldn't fill up 90 seconds of airtime, and nevertheless, they share them with me. Uh, now, many of these people did not fit the description of my initial query, but felt it necessary to comment, uh, contact me anyway. And this is the account of Peter uh, Edwards. He was a fourth, not was, he is a fourth generation fur trapper from none other than Southeast Alaska. And in an effort to fully develop the happenings surrounding uh, evidential findings, I ask all of the people that I interview to recount as much detail as possible. And you're not going to believe uh, the level to which Peter took that request. So here we go. My family has lived in Alaska for over 100 years, with my great-grandfather first settling here in hopes of finding gold. Although he did find some gold, he found himself also learning the craft of setting traps and snares to acquire pelts and furs which in and of itself can be quite profitable. Back in my great-granddad's day, there had not been many regulations here, nor were there people who enforced them. But as for myself, there are a number of critters that I trap throughout the seasons. However, this story surrounds the trapping of the marten. The marten is more commonly known by fur coat buyers as sable, they have a beautiful and extremely soft coat of reddish-brown fur, and depending on the marten prices, these pelts can be quite profitable. Each year, I bring in between one and 200 marten pelts. Now, the real trick in trapping a marten is to find their habitat and locating the animal's specific territories. If you've done your homework and provide the right bait, the animal's characteristic curiosity will ensure that you capture them successfully. It is, in fact, in tracking the marten's prey that you will uncover the marten's habitat. Find the food source, and you will find the consumer of that food. Martens are not aggressive as hunters, and their diet seems to be rather broad, with their favorite food being the pine squirrel. However, they have a taste for many other things as well, such as hares and ptarmigan. So if you are going to bait well, you must also hunt for their favorite prey with great efficiency. 
Interesting, Kev, that they like hairs. Maybe they're going to eat the Easter bunny. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, <laughs> you're going out to catch the Ostas. <laughs> I hope he delivered his candy already. Now, great granddad loved to use beaver, but I prefer to use fish as my bait, and I generally add a bit of skunk essence to any of my baits in order to spice them up. If it stinks, the Martins will come. Now, follow along with me here. This guy is excellent about setting the stage here. There are two ways to capture a Martin. They can either be caught above the ground or on the ground. Obviously, this requires two different styles of traps. On the ground, we use what is known as a combo box conibear set. And one can also use a foothold trap. But the modern conibear works quite well. Off the ground, we use what is called a leaning pole set, which requires a nice stiff branch in order to set it up properly. On some of my traps, I hang a shiny lid of a tin can, which is a trick that my granddad passed on to me. The Martins are quite inquisitive, and the sunlight and or moonlight reflecting off these lids seems to draw them in. One of my choice areas to trap is Granite Creek. And more often than not, I will set my trap string over quite a long distance. Trapping is not a business for the weak. And depending on the population density in different regions, you may be fortunate to catch a Martin or two for every mile or so of trap line that you set. You can do the math relative to the amount of effort and hiking involved in setting one's trap line, all being done on difficult terrain to navigate on foot. My routine is to set out about 10 traps. The location of these placements is based on several factors, including locating tracks, finding the food sources, and the presence of vegetation also being a must. My most productive traps are often located near the zones where swamp meets timber or where a river meets the timber line. I also keep a detailed log as to the whereabouts of my traps and what was taken from each one year to year. What I sent you was a copy of such a log before we spoke. Now, I have to interject here for a minute. The detail in Peter's log was incredible. And it was from this very log that the details and findings which you will soon be hearing about were taken. So let's get back to Peter's account. On this particular day, I had gone about setting my line in the usual fashion, and later on in the week, I returned to check the traps. Everything was fine until I got to the ones located by the timber line. This area has some low-lying hills that run right up into the timber, as well as a fair amount of varied and well-dispersed vegetation. I had seen a large population of hares and pine squirrels working in this area, and had actually set three traps in a one-mile span because of it looking so promising, even though one trap per mile tends to be typical for me. When I came upon the first pole set, it was ripped apart and the trap had been sprung. 
which is very hard to do without the strength and dexterity of a human hand. There was blood on the trap, so I could tell that a marten had been caught in it and at some point uh, caught in it at some point, and something or someone had stolen it. This got me aggravated because men can and do often rip off trappers' catches. When I approached the second trap, I was shocked to see the same thing had occurred. If I hadn't been mad before, I was certainly mad now. Proceeding onward, the rest of the traps had not been tampered with, and I had actually done quite well. Despite of the interference with all the traps, I reset and baited them and finished my loop and left. Excuse me a second. (coughs) Pardon me. The next time that I came to check them, I was met with the grim realization that all of my timberline traps had been opened, with each one of the traps having caught a marten, and all of the martens had been stolen. Now, three out of three traps having caught something is damn near impossible, but three out of three traps being found open and the catch removed is beyond impossible. It wasn't until I had made it all the way down by the marsh's edge that I began to realize what was going on. The marsh trap was set just inside of a soft area, and the marten also had been stolen from it. And next to it, I could see some very large water-soaked impressions in the muddy soil. Now, there was no way of telling what type of tracks these were since the depressions were so soggy and indistinct, so I guessed that it was a bear. I had never experienced such a thing before. The only thing I had ever seen evidence of was a lynx or a fox tearing at the flesh of a marten while it was still snared in the trap but I had never come across open traps with the prey completely removed from them. This was most unusual. So I decided that I was going to place two bear traps near the marten traps. I would conceal them totally and post them into the earth to secure them. These bear traps would require a considerable weight to trigger them. And if there was a bear coming in, I would get it. So here we go. The first time back through my set with the added bear traps, nothing was awry. And I had gotten four martens. So I reset and baited everything in the same way that I had always done. It was on the following check that things got a little weird which is why you and I, W.J., came in contact with each other. After seeing the previous set had been untouched, I believed that all was well, and whatever or whoever had robbed my catch had moved on. But that was about to change. When I reached the second bear trap, my set was destroyed, And the bear trap was not only sprung, but it was empty. 
It had been jammed into the ground some five or six inches deep, which is not an easy thing to do with a wide steel object that weighed north of 40 pounds. I examined it and saw some blood, indicating that something had gotten caught by it and had escaped. That in and of itself was beyond belief. I started to look around for further evidence, and my eye caught something lying about three feet from where the trap had been set. At first, I thought that it was a bloody portion of a large furry paw, which had been sheared off in the bear trap. But upon closer inspection, it was not a paw at all. It was a hair-covered segment of a large human-like foot. It appeared to be the front half of a foot and featured four very large and very wide toes. I flipped it over with a stick and saw that the sole of this partial, partial foot was flat and leathery. But here's the really odd thing. It had no claws, just thick, nasty-looking nails. Each of the toes was between two and a half and three inches wide, being very thick and about three inches long. I knew it wasn't a bear's foot, and it certainly hadn't come from a human. It had to belong to a Sasquatch. I set to do a little tracking. There was still some snow around under the trees, but most of the area was devoid of snow. I followed the trail of blood, which brought me into the timber, and there were still some patches of snow there where I could see large footprints. One was from the bloodied, chopped-off foot, and the other appeared normal. I could see that the other undamaged foot was about 22 inches or so long, and maybe 9 or 10 inches wide. This thing must have been in incredible pain and limping badly when it left the site. And who knows where it was going and if it would be able to survive an infection and or anything else that would occur from such a wound. I dared not follow any further in pursuit of a wounded monster and I never set any traps in that area again. Whoa. Pretty funky, huh? Peter chasing Peter Cottontail and using him to catch a Bigfoot. Unbelievable. (laughs) You know, but uh, the detail of this guy. Yeah. Now, look, again, he didn't see anything. He had a chunk of a foot that was knifed off in a bear trap. Yeah, with no no claws and covered in fur. Yeah, like what hair. is that? Yeah, what is that? And like a trapper doesn't know what he's looking at out there. I mean, for God's sake, the level of detail in uh, setting you up for what he does, how he does it, why he does it. He was like an encyclopedia of uh, Martin trapping. And... Uh, Then he decides, okay, you want to fool with me, bear? I'm going to get you. So he then comes out with his bear traps, figuring I'll get the bandit. 
And uh, this is what he finds instead. Yeah, yet another complete outdoorsman, you know, who knows exactly what he's looking for, looking at out in the wild, you know. So how how do we counter that argument? It's tough, tough yeah, or and impossible. A, a fourth generation fur trapper. Hmm. I mean, that's a lot of woods, a lot of knowledge, a lot of skill. Uh, uh, you know, and I don't know if you followed. This guy was basically setting up a ten uh, trap line, as he called it, with one trap predominantly every mile. Mm. Uh, unless he saw something promising, he'd set a few more. But so this guy was hiking ten miles to set his trap line, which means he had to hike ten miles to inspect it. I mean, this is like. And crazy, crazy uh, athleticism. Yeah. Deadliest catch of the forest. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah. it, it's just interesting to me, you know, the oddity or the oddities that occur uh, that only a dude like this is going to run across. Uh, first of all, there's nobody on planet Earth. How many trappers do you think are on planet Earth? Mm. Especially in this day and age. Mm. I mean, yeah. You could probably uh, less than a thousand people still trap regularly off for of, or for uh, money, you know. Yeah, especially going after sable, right? Yeah, I mean it's an incredible thing, you know. It's an education, you know. This is why I say, in uh, putting all these stories to pen and paper, uh, the education you get talking to all of these people, these little diamonds here and there. Uh, are just invaluable, you know, and these things really aren't taught in books. These things that are like handed down from like uh, an expert to an apprentice, you know what I mean, Kev? Oh, no doubt about it. It's you know. fun, you know, when I, I, I sit here and I listen, and you can picture walking along and seeing what Peter was seeing. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's just bizarre, you know, and and the fact that he knows that, you know, if you find a food source you're going to find what you're looking for. So, uh, you know, he has a very certain way of putting things in. I don't even know if it said it in the story, but the uh, the shiny lid of a tin can uh, was something that his uh, grandfather had used. And uh, at some point, I guess they were just experimenting, kind of like creating a new fishing lure or something. And he just said, let me put something shiny here. Maybe that'll attract this little varmint. Ah, you know? Super cool. Super cool. So, yeah, really uh, interesting, you know. So hopefully our listeners enjoyed a little Bigfoot and a little furry foot. Hostas. <laughs> Hostas. <laughs> All right. Well, great account, Bill. So detailed. So many details and... Uh, just felt like you were there. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't there, though, when he was talking about using the essence of a skunk to attract the Martin. Like, ugh. Yeah, you know, Yikes. but uh, like so many things, it's the stank <laughs> that brings the creatures in because their nostrils. How about dogs, Kev? You know, smelling a pile of you-know-what. Yeah. I mean, they're just attracted things that are overly odorous, you know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess the marten and the deer and anything else out there is the same way. Yep. 
All right, let's go to listener mail. We got some good mail this week. The first one is in one of the hotbeds of uh, the pandemic. This is from Patrice in Spain. Wow. Yeah, and Patrice writes, In the midst of this pandemic, I have found a breath of fresh air. With so much misery, it's good to hear you laugh and tell your stories. The two of you have great insight, and your show is rock solid. God bless you both, Patrice, and God bless you and your family, Patrice. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Uh, Spain and Italy got pretty rocked by this uh, mess. And it's nice that, you know, somebody so far away could stumble on what we're doing here on the East Coast of the United States and get a little solace out of it. Uh, maybe a couple of yucks, and uh, we're happy to provide a diversion to anybody who's willing to listen. So thank you, for Patrice, for uh, listening to us. Yeah, and it's a it's a fine line, folks. You know, like we we're sitting here, and like my heart hurts when I think about the folks in Spain and Patrice and her relatives. So we're we're trying to bring you a little bit of light in this uh, storm, but uh, we don't want to make light of what you're going through. So uh, it's good, good to hear. Good to hear your kind words, Patrice. And again, God bless you and your family. Uh, All right. We're going to go down south here in the United States to Teddy in Arkansas. Ah, Razorback. Razorback. Sweet. <laughs> and Terry writes, love the show and the oddities segment is quite fascinating. Don't get me wrong, I love all things Bigfoot, but these sideline tidbits about other strange beings and happenings are rather unique. Keep up the good work, you guys. Teddy. All right, Teddy. Well, thank you. <laughs> good stuff. Well, we're getting some encouragement here today, Kev, from some of the listeners. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, nobody's saying they arm wrestled the Bigfoot. They're <laughs> just saying that they're smelling what we're cooking. Exactly. Well, here we go. <laughs> we may be arm wrestling a Bigfoot in the next one. This is from Oh-ho! Herman in Colorado. Herman the German? <laughs> Herman? Uh, Evan was once on a two-day backpack trip in the Rockies, which, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Rockies, certainly rural enough for the hairy man. Uh Um, And he says, we were harassed the very first night by something whistling and throwing sticks into our camp. It was a moonless night and we couldn't see anything, but we stayed awake with guns drawn. There are no animals here that whistle and throw things that I am quite sh- I am quite sure was it Bigfoot? I can't say definitively, but there was nothing around where we were. Thanks, Herman. Wow. The whistling bell. Ooh, yeah, I don't I don't think he was whistling like uh the Andy Griffith show either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, nah, it wasn't that. That wasn't that. No, nah, no. Nah, it was more like the, the whistling of a Stuka dive bomber oh, dropping yeah, a payload. <laughs> you know, somebody told me a while ago that there is a variety of rabbit. Here we are back to the hares again. Uh, but 
I thought somebody said to me a while ago there was a variety of rabbit that actually whistles. Ah, the whistling hare. Yeah, it's a whistling hare. <laughs> it, it, it lets you, he whistles just before he bites you on the neck. <laughs> it could be the sound of the air flying over his fur while he's vaulting himself at you. <laughs> High-speed rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, and Kev, we were talking in... Uh, a uh, couple of episodes back, and again revisiting Dyatlov about that Mansi uh, woman. Oh yeah, the evil who, whistle. The evil whistle. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't know what's that. What and whatever you think it is, no animals throw things other than ape. Right. I mean, I don't know any animal that throws anything other than a chimpanzee, a gorilla, or. Da, 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 a Sasquatch. <laughs> so, you know, what else could it be? Whistling and throwing sticks out of the darkness mm. at their campfire. Totally Just creepy. A, yeah, really. And thankfully, Herman was armed. Uh, and I have to but, mention, it probably wasn't a whistling bear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. A whistling bear in a pink tutu. <laughs> with, a, with a parasol. Parasol. Mind if I join you, boys? <laughs> <laughs> I love big, strong men. <laughs> <laughs> Not. Get out of my camp. All right. Our last one is a, is a longer letter. It's a good one, though. From Orlando. Not the city, but the person. Orlando in Cobleskill, New York. So upstate. Okay. I would encourage every listener to this podcast to buy WJ's audiobooks. If they were on cassette, I would have burned them out already. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, people don't even know what a cassette I know, is. I know. The younger generation is like, what the heck's a cassette? Remember they used to bind up and you'd have to carefully take them out and like reel oh, them in with a pencil or something? The tape would be stuck in the deck. Yeah. Oh, man. Beautiful. Great yeah. technology. <laughs> People can't appreciate a DVD oh, or yeah. a CD. CD, yeah. All right, and he says, this is important, I just bought The Exorcist's Diabolica. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the new book. What a story. In 2002, I was hiking the Adirondack Trail on a segment I am more than a bit familiar with. It was early fall, and the leaves were ablaze in the sunlight. I had an uneasy feeling come over me that only a woodsman can appreciate or describe. I knew I was being watched. Standing my ground, I began to gaze about my surrounds. When I saw something dark ducked down behind a fallen tree, and I bolted. Mm. It was instantaneous fear. In a split second, I saw the rounded top of a large brown head from the nose up. It looked like a gorilla's face. Whatever it was had to be flat on the ground behind this down tree, which sat about two feet off the ground. I will never forget that moment, and I was unarmed. Great show. Wow. Great account there. You know, again, one of those short accounts, Bill, but fantastic. Yeah, I mean, can you picture yourself alone, unarmed? First, you get the heebie-jeebies, like something's not right here. And then he sees this and just, like, gets wheels. Ooh. 
Oh, my God. So yeah. here we go, though. Uh, remember, you know, whenever I think of uh, something lying on the ground, do you remember when we did that uh, account, Kev, uh, uh, where the guy described what he was seeing in the bushes as being like the face in the eggs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Remember that? And he was like fishing and he couldn't get his eyes off of this thing low to the ground. That was Yeah, and he had that dark. feeling too, right? You know, you always have that feeling. Same thing. Yeah. But he was like, you know, what could be that low to the ground? It's got to be like an illusion or something else there. Yeah. But these things apparently... Uh, Belly crawl, what I call like a sniper crawl, yep. to get into position or to hide. Yeah, and you're not typically thinking of a Bigfoot laying down. No, you're. if I'm walking through the woods, I'm thinking I'm looking for some dark figure passing between the trees to catch my eye. Right. I'm not looking at the leaves on the ground if I'm trying to see a Bigfoot. Right. And again, though, I think that's part of the stealthiness. I've mentioned that before. Because, you know, you see something, you're looking around at the same level you saw it. You're not, like, getting down on your knees and looking into the brush. It's just not natural to look for no. that. No, it's not natural. And even in my yard, uh, in when I say my yard, you know, the property behind me, whenever I go out and I'm just looking to see if the deer are around or if anything's cooking... I'm not looking down on the ground, and many times some of them are laying there resting. Yeah. Uh, but my initial look is that of, I don't know, maybe three or four feet up, like at eye level, yeah. peering out over the, the property and just seeing if something is walking around, not laying there, but walking around. Yep. So that is just, I, I feel for this guy that he bolted out of there, you're alone, and he gets the creepy feeling, and then he sees this freaking dark lump or whatever sticking above a tree that he immediately recognizes as being something like a gorilla face or head. Yeah, and he's unarmed. Unarmed. Whew. He's not following your advice, Bill. Well, he is now. That's true. <laughs> One would hope. Very true. <laughs> well, that's our last uh, letter for the week, folks. Great show. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, again, God bless all of you in the heart of this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, we certainly appreciate you taking time out to listen to us. And uh, happy Easter and happy Passover. And um, please, you know, if you like the show at all, please give us five stars right now on your favorite podcast player. And uh, that's really important because it draws more listeners to the program and that allows us to continue to improve and publish the program. So thank you very much for your support. And again, happy Easter and happy Passover. Awesome. My sentiments exactly. Kev, what was that fella's name? The last one on the Adirondack Trail? Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. Well, let me say this, folks. Learn a lesson from Orlando. If you should be hopping along the bunny trail this Easter, make sure that you're always carrying more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight and happy Easter.